Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and I have some huge news for you, Fem fans. Femtech Focus has partnered with the Guild Academy to launch the first ever virtual Femtech Accelerator. Applications for this eight-week virtual accelerator close on September 18th. Uh, The program is jam-packed with femtech experts, plus one-on-one consulting with myself and my co-founder, Dr. Julie Hakeem. Doesn't matter where you're located in the world since it's virtual, so get those applications in. You can get them at letsguildacademy.com backslash femtech. That's letsguildacademy.com backslash femtech. All right. So in today's episode, I interviewed Dr. Kelly Teagle, founder of WellFem. WellFem is a telehealth service in Australia that specializes in menopause and midlife care for women. When Dr. Teagle was experiencing perimenopausal symptoms at age 42, she was able to reach out to her medical peers, her friends, get healthcare treatments that she needed ASAP. It was at this time that Dr. Teagle realized that most women don't have access to menopause specialists especially women in rural areas areas of Australia. Thus, WellFem was born. Their personalized menopause treatment plans are available through telemedicine or telemedicine, as they say, to all Australian women wherever they live. You can learn more by going to WellFem with a F-E-M-M-E, wellfem.com.au, because they're Australia. <laughs> pretty great. It's a great accent. Um, On this episode, Dr. Kelly Teagle and I discuss barriers to telehealth for women on Australia, healthcare for indigenous Australian women, and cultural differences in menopause. Enjoy. Hey, Kelly, welcome to the show. Yeah. Hi, Brittany. Thanks very much for asking. Yeah, I am super excited for your interview today because you are going to talk to us about menopause, one of our hottest and favorite topics about on this podcast. But with a little bit of a twist, you are in Australia. And so I am so excited today to kind of dig into the Australian experience of menopause and, you know, the differences and similarities. Maybe it's all the same. I don't know. We're going to discover that together. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that women are built the same in Australia as they are in America. So hopefully there'll be plenty of of points of similarity. Yeah, I guess I should clarify for our listeners. I am aware that I think the hot flashes are probably a international, you know, commonality, but how you address it or talk about it may be different. Yeah. Yeah. It translates in Australia as being hot flushes. Oh, so okay. So the hot flashes flashes are a little different. All right. All right. This is good. This is good. The other Australian we interviewed told me that um, they don't call periods period. They call them hard stops in Australia. Yeah, that was was Megan. I heard her interview with you, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm collecting all this good stuff. So when I show up there one day, I'm just like one of the one of the crew, you know. 
<laughs> You'll be able to speak Aussie women's help. Perfect. Yes. What a goal. <laughs> well, <laughs> Kelly, why don't you start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Um, you know, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Did you always want to be in women's health? And how did you end up in there? Oh, yeah. Wow. Big question. Um, okay. So I grew up in country Victoria, actually. And um, I'm one of those people that never really knew what I wanted to be when I grow up, including now. I still really don't know what I want to be when I grow up. But I think that's pretty common to entrepreneurs, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We just kind of go where the wind takes them. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so yeah, I grew up in country Victoria. And for various different reasons, I ended up in the military out of high school. So I finished uh, high school in the 80s in a place called Albury uh, in, in, or on the border of New South Wales and Victoria and then went off to um, the Defence College in, uh, in Canberra in Australia and I ended up with a 20-year military career. Wow. Um, I started, yeah, I know. It's, it's been very, you know, I don't know, disjointed I suppose you'd say. I started my career in the military as uh, what they call uh, an air defence controller. So it's somebody who sits on a radar watches fighter jets kind of flying around in the sky on the radar and then tells them where to go to shoot each other. Um, <laughs> oh so, yeah, God. that was kind of like, Someone tapped was, you on the shoulder and said, you're going to work on menopause one day. <laughs> you would be like, yeah. um, <laughs> no. It was like playing a big video game there for a while. And um, I, I don't know, I guess after a while I started to realise that it wasn't really a very grown-up job in terms of uh, it didn't have any any um, applications in the real world Mm. so I was kind of either going to be stuck in a military career working with fighter jets all my life or get a get a job where I could actually sort of expand into other areas so Mm. I went to I ended up going to medical school much to my own surprise and um, I managed to still be sponsored by the military so I ended up being a, um, a military medical officer and then from there, when I was transitioning out of the military, I started to get really interested in women's health. And um, so now I'm a general practitioner. I've trained as a general practitioner, which is like a family doctor in the States. Mm-hmm. And um, and I've orientated my practice pretty much towards women's health specifically. And then, you know, for various different reasons over the last few years, I've, I've gotten a special interest in menopause. Um, wow. that was, that, that was mainly because I went through an early menopause myself. Okay. Uh, so I was, when I was 42 years old, um, I was going through a pretty rough patch in my life, separating mm. from my husband. Um, my kids were still really small. They were like one and four years old. And I started to experience kind of really bad mood swings. Um, I was getting really flushy. I was sort of sleeping very poorly and I didn't really put it all together as to what was going on, even though I was very experienced in treating women with Mm -hmm. their women's health problems. Um, So it took kind of a while before the penny dropped what was actually happening to me and that I was going through an early menopause. Wow. You know what that kind of reminds me of is when I, I'm from New Jersey. It's kind of like Northeast it's near New York City. Everyone in the world knows where New York City is on a map, right? And But when I moved mm. to Texas, uh, totally different environment, and I would get seasonal allergies in February, which in New Jersey, there's still snow. You don't get allergies in February. And so, like, yeah, I right. knew my whole life what allergies were, but it took me, like, three Februaries in a row to realize I wasn't having a month-long cold 
I had allergies in mm-hmm. February. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you're saying yeah. like you were having these mood swings that you would diagnose and see all the time, but you were like, not me, you know, you weren't kind of like mm-hmm. placing mm-hmm. it there, huh? Yeah, context is everything. And mm. I think, you know, um, being able to be an observer of other people doesn't necessarily make you a good observer Ooh, of yourself. I like that. You know? yes. um, so, yeah. And so I knew that these symptoms were all associated with menopause. But of course, in what was going on in my life at the time, it, yeah. you know, you would have thought, well, it's natural that I'm going to feel anxious and yeah. I'm going to be moody and not sleeping well because there's so much going on. So, yeah, sometimes it takes a bit of drilling down to work out what's really going on. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that gave me a real personal perspective on just how debilitating the symptoms of menopause can be. And being a doctor, I was lucky enough to have that knowledge and know who to go to for help. And I also very soon realized how easily those symptoms could be effectively treated. Mm. And I thought, why are so many women suffering with menopausal symptoms when, you know, why don't, why don't we just hook them all up with these really, you know, good, effective treatments? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's stopping it? And I guess that's kind of over the last few years, that's what's evolved my thinking into ways of delivering the care to women who can't access it or, you know, don't have the information they need, um, hooking them up with the right professionals. So, And that's mm. where Wellfem was born, right? That's where Wellfem was born, yeah. <laughs> I actually have worked, been, you know, I've worked in a menopause clinic before and I all the time in my general practice I'm seeing women with menopausal issues. And, you know, it occurred to me after a while that I rarely ever actually needed to touch a woman during these consultations because mm. for the most part they're being looked after very well by their own family doctors, so their general health issues are, are well managed. But, um, you know, they're coming to me with a story, you know, with oh, a cluster of yeah. symptoms. Um, it's it's all in the history. So pretty much everything I do is, is taken from the history. And by nature of that, it's a very long, involved consultation. You know, the ones I do are about mm-hmm. 45 minutes to really get to know somebody's background and issues. Um, but, yeah, it's all, it's all done just from talking to the woman. So, it, you know, I realised this sort of service could be very well provided by telehealth, um, but nobody was doing it. And I just couldn't work it out why nobody was doing it. Yeah. So after a while, like actually pursuing that idea, I started to realise why no one was doing it. And that's because it's actually quite hard to set up when nobody else is doing it already. Oh, what are some of the barriers you found in setting up? And also, I love you say telehealth and I say telehealth, mm. but whatever. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um what were some of the barriers you saw when you're setting up menopause-based telehealth? Mm. So a big one in Australia is um, the limitations on the funding. So we have an awesome system here called Medicare. And um, it, so it just means that if you've got serious medical problems that you can get treated in public hospitals and centres and you won't have to pay anything because it's publicly funded. So that's fabulous. And also... Um, there are a set level of fees that the Medicare system will pay for various different um, services, you know, say like going to see a general practitioner, you get part of that money back um, or all of it. That's called bulk billing if the GP just, you know, only just bulk bills you and you don't have any gap. Um, the problem is that for telehealth provided by GPs like myself, there is that up until now there's been no Medicare rebate. So, mm. you know, a, a, do, a, a patient could come and see me in my menopause clinic um, and they'll get, you know, most of the consultation feedback. 
but mm. if I give them that service via telehealth, they don't get any money back. So that's a huge mm. barrier for women, you know, who are disadvantaged um, and a lot of them are the ones that really need the service yeah. the most. They haven't been able to afford to get the services because they can't pay a private fee without getting any Medicare rebate. Yeah. So, um, yeah, then along comes COVID, everything <laughs> changes, and all of a sudden our government's managed to do 10 years' worth of telehealth work in like three days. <laughs> And, it is possible. Yeah. Ob- like it almost is infuriating, mm. right? Like, oh, you guys could have done this, right? <laughs> yeah, it's possible. It's like, oh, we've only been asking for this for the last, you know, kind of ten years, and they're wondering why telehealth was so slow getting up and running in Australia. <laughs> but now everybody's doing it. You know, yeah. in my general practice, I'm doing it because we can. We can. Yeah. We can actually even even for a phone consult at the moment the patient can get a Medicare rebate. So that's really transformed things. And now, you know, after just three or four months of this, patients are going, why haven't we always been able to do this? And and please do not turn this off on the 30th of September, which is the current plan, because we need this to continue. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so it remains to be seen how that's going to go. So at the moment, um, my patients are great. business is booming because women who've been waiting for an opportunity to to use my service have now been able to afford it because they're getting a rebate. So um, I'm getting lots more business from that. But I worry that if the telehealth rebates don't continue, um, that we're going to be back to square one Mm. and it's only women who are the most well-off who will be able to afford to access the service. And just a a quick question for the rebate, is it, uh, was it an issue for telehealth of any you know, disease, any kind of telehealth whatsoever, or was it specific to menopause that it wasn't being reimbursed? Yeah, the only, uh, so if you were in the country areas, say, and you needed to see a specialist Mm -hmm. and your GP referred you to a specialist who could provide that service via telehealth, then you could actually get a rebate for the specialist's Mm. um, services. So we're talking gynecologist, endocrinologist, um, you know, surgeon, whatever. Um, but GPs are, are not recognised as specialists yeah. in Australia for that purpose. So, you know, a GP couldn't just communicate with their patient directly. You know, even if they were 200 kilometres away, a GP couldn't communicate directly with their patient and have that service rebated. Wow. Well, Uh, That is amazing. Like we have to find all those silver linings in COVID. And if this is one of them, that's fantastic. But Mm -hmm. like you said, apparently there's a a deadline, right? And so we hope Mm -hmm. that this continues because we've been hearing from every single person that, you know, telehealth empowers women. It's great for everyone, Mm -hmm. but it's particularly fantastic for women um, based on, you know, uh, a woman's lifestyle context is really important for her appointment. And if you're doing it uh, telehealth in her home, like you can kind of get some context around it. Or if it's a woman who is a single mom with kids, like she is to go to the doctor, she needs a babysitter. Like there's all of these factors Mm -hmm. that are limiting women from going into the office. So, oh, Mm -hmm. that's super awesome. What are like some of the most common things that you know your patients are bringing to you is it like are they usually like in the beginning phases of menopause or are they like in the neck you know in it or you know when do you what is the most common menopause patient oh well the brilliant thing at the moment is you know over the last few months I'm I'm getting women from all different 
areas of life, you know. Mm. So, I mean, typically, of course, they're in the typical menopausal age of, you know, kind of between 40 and 60. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm seeing, you know, women in urban settings, um, women in country mm. areas, um, ones ones that can be very, very young and wondering if they're going into an early perimenopause because they're, they're sort of getting typical symptoms, uh, right through to ones who are postmenopausal um, and have been putting up with symptoms for years and years oh. or maybe they're already on treatment and they just need some advice for for tweaking that treatment um yeah so actually at the moment because there's the rebates um, you're getting it all women from all walks (laughs) of life yeah wow because the conversation is growing around menopause Mm -hmm. and it's making women think could this be related to menopause you know and whereas previously I think it was kind of like you know I, I think of it like when people think about their death they know it's off there in their future somewhere, but it's not something anyone likes to think about. So we kind of like go, oh, well, let's just ignore that. Yeah, as long we as put possible. the blinders and on. We'll get there when we'll get yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Because this is not something that's very pleasant, apparently. So you know that we'll we'll just ignore that until we have until we have to face it. And that's why I think it takes a lot of women by surprise. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. So. We've interviewed some people about menopause in the U.S. and something that kept coming up was, you know, we teach, you know, young girls about their period, but it's like we left out the last chapter of the book, which is menopause, right? Mm -hmm. We tell her all about Mm -hmm. puberty and then fertility, and then we just kind of drop it off, right? And we never tell her about the Mm -hmm. last chapter. Um, And women don't normally learn about menopause until they're in it. And so in Australia, Mm -hmm. is it a similar context, similar story? Or is there more talk about menopause earlier on? No, absolutely. It's the same in same. Australia in that respect. It's it's um, it's always been a little bit ignored. You know, if I speak to my patients and I say, um, what was your mum's experience? They go, oh, I don't know. She never talked about yes. it. You know, like I remember her being kind of like fanning her face all yes. the time and being really cranky, but that's like she never talked about it. Um, so yeah, no, I, I absolutely think that it's a conversation that hasn't been readily had yes. and, you know, as, as a mother, you always feel like it's your responsibility to prepare your daughter well for her first periods and her mm-hmm. first, you know, sexual experience and for having her babies and whatever. But, you know, it doesn't seem to occur to women that it's important to prepare their daughters for menopause. Yeah, And I think that's a real shame because it, it puts it almost makes it a shameful topic because of that, a hidden away topic. Mm-hmm. And so women approach it with uh, fear and um, superstition and um, suspicion. And, you know, it can be such an empowering time of life. This is the thing, you know, like I'm, you know, I was eight years postmenopausal when I started welfare. And, you know, it doesn't mean that your creative life, your working life, your sexual life or any of those things are over. There's a lot of really empowering things about being older and wiser and having that insight. Mm. And uh, I think it's we've just got this amazing opportunity um, as menopausal and postmenopausal women to be mentors, to make the lives of the women coming through behind us so much better by empowering them with information. Oh my gosh, I love this so much. And I the reason I was like so intensely saying yes was because until I <laughs> launched this podcast, my mom told me, oh yeah, I went through menopause like four years ago. And it's like, yeah, we've never talked about it. You know, it took took me to mm. start a femtech podcast for her to tell me. And it's not like mm, we, mm. you know, are secretive or don't talk about stuff like that. You know, it was just like, it just didn't 
it wasn't something we talked about. And so, um, yeah, wow. Like oh, mom's preparing the next generation of, of that experience. So interesting. Well, mm-hmm. y- you know, we were talking about, um, uh, something that was very fascinating to me before we started recording. And I'd love to bring it back up on record with our listeners. Cause I think they're going to really appreciate this. So, you know, Australia has this, you know, additional, culture of indigenous people. And there has, you know, I've only seen, I've never been Australia. And so I've only had to you know, read books or articles and stuff about it. But you said that there's some, you know, things that could be innovated there in terms of menopause or women's health for the Aboriginal uh, people of Australia. So can you walk us through that a little bit, you know, as someone who lives there and, you know, works in women's health, what are you seeing? What do you, what do you suggest? Mm. You know, um, I started Wellfem. I only launched at the beginning of last year, and um, and in the beginning, you know, like the kids and I were celebrating if I had one client in a week. You know, <laughs> it's it's been getting building my client base, getting the word out that this exists and everything has been slow and steady and it's just starting to really take off now that the telehealth rebates are around. But, you know, in all that time, and I've been asking the question of every woman I see, um, you know, do you identify as being Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander heritage? And nobody's ticked the box, yes. Like, so, you know, it's interesting that that with these uh, femtech you know, opportunities around and femtech businesses that they're not being accessed, at least in my business at least, they're not being accessed by um, Indigenous women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd like to know the reasons for that. Um, when I was at the a menopause conference a couple of years ago, there was a really good presentation on, um, you know, different cultural experiences of menopause around the world. And they talked Ooh. about Japanese women and European women and all of this. And afterwards, I went up to the presenter and I said, you know, is there any research into the experience of Australian Indigenous women? And they went, oh, well, we don't know of any. Um, because, you know, I mean, that yes, the women are a small proportion, I guess, yeah. population-wise um, of the Australian population, but they're just really unstudied. And is that because they don't yeah. experience it? Is that because, or, or of course, they experience menopause, but do they not experience bad symptoms? Do they just not talk about it? Are they so busy being wrapped up in, you know, other much bigger issues of, you know, like trying to feed their families and domestic mm-hmm. violence and, you know, unemployment and all of those kinds of social issues that it's really low down on their priority list yeah. so they don't ever ever bother to complain about it I'd really like to know about that and I'd really like to understand more about what their needs are yeah so that so that we can target new femtech kind of um services towards them just um just for your interest and that of your listeners Brittany um so I know it's emancipation day over there today and that made me think of looking this up um some statistics about Australian Indigenous women Oh, yeah. Apparently, now these statistics were from 2013, but apparently um, that there's five times the rate of teenage motherhood amongst Indigenous Australian women um, compared to the general population. And the mean age of Indigenous mothers is 24.8 compared to 30.6 in the general population. So Mm -hmm. they're like much, much younger mothers, um, five times the rates of teen pregnancies. The babies are twice as likely to be low birth weight. 
Mm. Um, and overall, the life expectancy of an Australian Indigenous woman is almost 10 years less than non-Indigenous women. So, you know, their life expectancy is about 73 years compared to, you know, nearly 10 years higher in the non-Indigenous women. Wow. So there are a lot of, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in the background that contributes to that, mm-hmm. but there's issues around that they have higher rates of um, of sexual transmitted diseases and things like that as well and domestic violence. So all of these things um, both from a health and social perspective, need to be explored and, and anything that we can do in femtech that helps to support the women and, and um, help them to access quality health care has got to be a good thing. Absolutely. Well, you know, it also makes me think, like, maybe they actually really treasure and honour menopause and they, be, you know, believe in, like, the woman's wisdom really comes out and, like, that's why we don't hear them complain about it because they see it so differently from us. Who knows, um, <laughs> right? But we won't know unless we we meet with them, right, and, like, spend time <clears throat> with them. And so it's it's really interesting, like, there may be secrets out there for how we should be thinking about things, right? Um, mm-hmm. That we just haven't un- unveiled yet. Um, but if we're speaking to the listener who's looking for something to keep innovating, one of my favorite topics of innovation for femtech is not necessarily what is the biggest, most expensive medical device you can make, but what is like <laughs> the cheapest, easiest to make, good for the environment, you know, pad you can make for women in India, right? It's like, the total yes. opposite of technology, but also like super, super important, super important, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, what have, you know, women that have done telehealth with you been saying afterwards? Do they feel like they're finally not alone? Do they feel normalized? You know, tell us about that. Mm. They say thank you. They're so, <laughs> they're so excited. Um, yeah, I, I actually have had this is one of the things that just keeps me going no matter how hard it gets is is like um, I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware of this that when I was looking up statistics about like just how big is this problem in Australia yeah. um, the only study I could find was estimating that there's something like 385,000 Australian women um, and this is in a population of only around 25 million remember um, that so about 385,000 women that are suffering with um, moderate to severe debilitating kind of vasomotor symptoms, which is hot flushes and night sweats that aren't being treated. And, you know, as I said, it's really frustrating to know that there are really good, safe, effective treatments that that, you want to connect those women with those treatments. Um, So, you know, but a lot of them, the reason why this is going on is that they'll go to their GP um, and their GP might be in the country, for example, that they, they might have a choice of only one or two GPs. Mm. They might be older males from a non-English speaking mm. background. They might be a locum doctor who just kind of comes in for a few months and then moves on. Um, they, you know, they may not have any appreciation whatsoever for the significance of these symptoms to the woman's own personal context. And they just go, oh, you'll be right, love. It'll pass in a couple of years. Don't worry about it, oh, you know. God, yeah. Um, or they go, oh, no, you've got high blood pressure, so you can't use hormones. Just You just have to put up with it. So yeah. they're getting either no advice, bad advice, patronising advice, um, and they just don't know where to go. Yeah. There's, there's this plethora of um, services that are available online 
but they are, you know, they might be selling an expensive, non-evidence-based kind of compounded mm. products or something, um, you know, and these women are very vulnerable to that and they'll sign up, you know, women who can barely afford to put decent food on the table will sign up to pay hundreds of dollars a month to have, you know, wow. like these these compounded, non-evidence-based things supplied to them. And then they come to me and they go, I've been using this stuff and it's just not working mm. and I'm, you know, miserable all the time. And so they they just, they're so grateful when you can actually explain to them what's going on in their bodies, where you can offer them a range of different options that, you know, um, to choose from so that they can find something that will be suitable for them. And you can actually tell it to them from an evidence base so they mm. know um, what, the, what the likelihood is that it's going to help and what you know, what the, what the rates of um, problems or risks are, um, you know, I really like being able to, to tell them stuff from an evidence base so that I can actually be realistic with them about what to expect. Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. Are, are there other, you know, platforms or resources in Australia that are targeting menopause? The two bigger ones in the U.S. is uh, Genev and Lisa Health. So is there other mm-hmm. resources like this in Australia? Um, so as I said, you know, there, there are services, um, but they're all kind of coming from, um, you know, their angle is that they're selling products. Oh yeah. Let me clarify. Um, So like actually data driven, mm -hmm. evidence based (laughs) resources. Yeah. Not so much. Not so much. I'm sure, I'm sure they would argue with me on that. Um, (laughs) You know, like, because if you, if, if I write to them and I say, what is the evidence yeah, base for what yeah. you've just claimed here? They'll go, oh, we've got this and this and this, you know, kind of, oh, um, yeah. you know, study study of one or something. And you know, <laughs> one. But, <clears throat> yeah, and I, yeah, I, I really, it's a really hard thing to talk about for me because yeah. there are a lot of women who are very invested yeah. in their different kinds of alternative therapies. Mm-hmm. And honestly, placebo effect is really powerful. It so is. if you spent loads of money on something and you and your next door neighbor told you that it worked really well for them and you've, you feel personally invested in that idea, then maybe you will get some benefit from it. But I can't tell you what the likely harms might be of that, you know? Um, So, yeah, as far as, I mean, I call, I call my service Australia's first dedicated um, menopause, telehealth menopause clinic, because even though there are other services out there that'll chat to you on the phone and send you out stuff in the mail, um, mine is the only service that's a dedicated menopause clinic that actually just translates what you would get in a medically driven evidence-based menopause clinic and translates it to telehealth. Yeah. And for anyone out there who thinks menopause is niche, this woman is literally doing all of her work only in one thing. You're doing only menopause. So obviously it's not that niche, right? Mm, (laughs) Not mm, like you can't find patients. And there's a huge (laughs) demand, an absolute huge demand for it, you know, and it's it's really starting to grow as word of mouth gets around and everything as well. In fact, I'm at that lovely kind of point in my business now where up until now, I've been kind of scrambling to do everything myself, all the marketing, all yeah. the blogging, all of the consultations, um, putting together all the IT systems and everything. Um, and now I'm kind of at that point where I'm going, this is ridiculous. I, if I <laughs> want to keep on growing 
the clinical side and focus on the clinical side, I'm going to have to start outsourcing investing. Yep. (laughs) Exactly. So I've just started talking to a proper marketing person who's going to kind of help me get all set up properly and and I'm going to have to streamline the workflow of my IT system yeah. so that I can bring in other doctors now and have them oh, use it nice it's and It's a good problem to have. That's a great problem mm. to have, right? <laughs> it is. It is. Well, I have, a, I have another question for you in terms of like other resources. So, And you may not know the answer to this, so we can just be brainstorming together. But, Mm -hmm. you know, when I had a chat with Megan from Sydney, Australia, we were talking about, you know, she was like, guess what? There's this new startup that's going to deliver your birth control. And I said, oh, gosh, in America, that's been happening for years. And so we got Mm -hmm. into this discussion of why is U.S. innovation and femtech not reaching Australia and why Mm. aren't Australia companies merging into the U.S.? And so, you know, when I when I saw our interview coming up, I thought, well, this sounds a lot like Genev, you know, with telehealth for menopause. Are they not in Australia or do you plan to come to the U.S.? Sorry, everyone. You can Mm. hear my dog in the background. He's very passionate (laughs) about (laughs) <laughs> I think he's saying, take me to Australia. He's passionate about women's health. He's very passionate, yes. Um, <laughs> so what is your thought on that? Like, do you have any mm. clue as to why, like, Genev hasn't been in Australia yet? Or are they there? Or uh, what is that? No, Genev isn't there. In fact, um, the closest model that I know of of a business in the U.S. similar to what I'm doing is Electra, um, oh. probably. Yeah, um, because, you know, they're like me, they more focus on just providing a medical consultation, advice, information, support, um, rather than sort of selling products and stuff Uh to back that up. uh Um, So, and and like, you know, I realised the other day when I kind of was looking to see what other people are doing internationally, um, you know, because I've been doing some live stream menopause workshops Uh on Facebook and I'm going to sort of grow that a little bit too. Um, you know, so that women in country areas can attend, web, you know, webinars and seminars about menopause. And I think Electra does that too. <clears throat> but um, I think the difficulties with the medical space, particularly if you're, if you're providing a, um, you know, so if you're an accredited medical professional, a doctor, whatever, mm. that you're licensed and registered only in your own country. That's right. So, you know, it would be illegal for me to treat anybody internationally. So, you know, oh. given that my business is primarily, you know, medical treatment, advice, support, um, I wouldn't be able to provide that service to somebody in another country. Interesting. But one thing that I would like to know is because one of my biggest problems in putting this business together is to make all the the dis the disparate parts of the IT talk to one another and work together seamlessly so that I can have a nice end-to-end client experience. Mm. Um, you know, the booking system doesn't talk to my clinical software and the clinical software, mm. um, you know, I need an add-on to do the video video consultation and um, you know, so all these and, and if I want a messaging service, well then I have to kind of, you know, get Another that thing. developed separately. Yeah. So the I would like to know, you know, what is out there for an individual doctor who wants to take what they're doing to the general public through telehealth. They just want to kind of sign up to some kind of doctor in a box kind of thing that has it already set up for them. So all they have to do is sit down, um, have the bookings come in and start seeing patients. They don't Mm. want to be a practice manager. They don't want to spend hours doing pointless admin like I do. (laughs) They just want to to see patients. Mm -hmm. 
Wow. So, you know, um, I think that is another thing. But so there would definitely be room in terms of swapping um, or translating IT systems to yes. support this. But I think the actual execution of it as a, as a medical service would have to be very much, um, you know, specific to the location. And then there's also the cultural context, you mm. know. Um, I need to be able to provide this service because menopause is a very personalised area you really need to understand how the woman lives you know um the the cultural context she's grown up in um you know her values all of that stuff and that's very different from country to country that's right yeah well you know at femtech focus we are anticipating launching our um virtual femtech accelerator and i've already been thinking about the time zone differences um you Mm. know right now it's 7 30 p.m here what time is it there for you yeah, it's like um, 10.30 a.m. on Saturday it's, morning. You're in the future. Yep, you're in the future. Yeah. <laughs> and so... The um, future's great. You'll love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's good. It's good. Um, but I've been thinking about, like, how are we going to manage this? Because there's femtech companies all over the world. And so I was like, well, I let's just franchise it and have the people that are local there run it, you know? And that, moreover... I bet my advice on marketing a femtech company in the United States is going to be different than marketing in Japan or marketing in Ukraine mm. or, you know, Australia, mm, right? Like there's going to be absolutely. cultural differences, different laws. Like who knows? And if you have a French femtech company, you may be able to run ads about periods. Like in the United States, apparently we're just not caught up enough. And like, still, you still can't talk about periods in the media, you know? And so mm those are different challenges based on what country you're in. And so I wonder mm. if, you know, the U S companies, although can't subscribe medicine in Australia and an Australian doctors can't, sub, you know, prescribe medicine in the U S maybe there's some kind of mm. franchise pipeline. Cause what I'm trying to do here is like, all the women deserve all the things. If it's built, all the women should have access to it, whatever country you're in, mm. you know, and so how can we create those pipelines where then the locals run it, though, and are allowed to modify mm. it accordingly to how that country runs? I don't know. I'm brainstorming mm. with you here. Brainstorming. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's very reasonable. You know, if you've, if you've got something that works in one local area, yeah. um, one, one country, then, you know, it happens all the time, doesn't it, that businesses go overseas and then they just make local changes. Oh, like I was in. I was in India years and years ago and walked into a McDonald's there and they had the McMurgle burger, which was like <laughs> a, a lamb. They have lamb-based lamb burgers in yeah, India because yeah, they, they can't eat it. beef, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, man, that's my hope. Um, but what is what is your hope for femtech? What do you think the femtech industry needs the most right now to be successful? Um, yeah, I was thinking about this earlier, actually, because you know, I, as I just described, one of the big problems for me being from a non-IT background mm. and now running essentially an IT kind of business is that I really needed that external advice and I, it's taken me much, much longer than it should have to experiment with popping mm. different, different things together and trying to make them talk to one another. Um, and I realised it still doesn't exist. What I what I need, at least in, in Australia, yeah. it just doesn't exist. And so I would love to be able to connect with um, IT developers who are looking for a new problem to solve. Yeah. You know, so I, I feel like I would really love it if 
there could be this pool of people um, who ha- who are in the femtech industry who have a problem that needs solving, and then this pile of developers who are looking for a new problem to dissolve and to, to solve, and then you know we get these people together. So some kind of um, forum or platform that we can hook up those people because I know exactly what I need. And I know <laughs> how to tell them, tell them I want this to work with this, and I want it to be able to do that, um, and I just want somebody. You know, I think it would probably cost like less than $50,000 to do the dev work to set it up. But I don't know how to find those people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny you say that because um, in Houston, we, our startup community is, is young. We've, you know, really blossomed over the last six years. Um, And we have a lot of people with amazing ideas, but we lack software developers. Um, we, mm-hmm. we have a good amount, but they're getting paid buku bucks at Exxon and our big oil and gas company. So they don't want to leave those good mm. companies for startups. But so we have a mm. shortage of CTO co-founders. We have a shortage of technical co-founders. So we have all these people with really good ideas and they're like, somebody build it, you know? So mm-hmm. it's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I see you falling right into that as well, where you're like, I have the vision, somebody code it. <laughs> Right. Oh, yeah. And I think there'd be a huge market for it, you know, yeah. because I think that's one of the things that's held doctors back mm. in our country, besides the Medicare thing. And, you know, um, it's you'd have to be pretty brave to kind of leap out as a doctor from being in your nice, comfortable yeah. um, medical setting in the hospital or the general practice or whatever and actually want to go it alone. And then there's all these ba- other barriers to setting it up. Yeah. Um, so I think there would be a market there for it. Definitely. And, um, you know, we kind of touched on this earlier, but I just didn't know if you wanted to add anything else for our listeners that want to start a femtech company. Is there any areas in women's health and wellness that you think still need innovating? Um, yeah, well, so we talked about that whole area of indigenous women's health. I really feel like, but, and that's really fascinating because you, you can't just take, um, you know, normal, you know, the solutions that we're used to using um, that work for your urban communities and, and, um, you know, for your primarily Caucasian populations, you can't just assume that that's going to work in an Indigenous setting. So Mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, there needs to be more uh, more studies, more research and uh, more collaboration to develop femtech solutions for Australian Indigenous women. Mm, I love it. Mm. I love it. I love it. Well, This has been such an amazing conversation, Kelly. I've really enjoyed our time together and I am going to get to Australia one day and I'm going to say, (laughs) Megan and I will take you out on the town. (laughs) Yes. yes. (laughs) I'm I'm learning all the lingo. So we're going to have a good time and talk about uteruses and uh, have a blast. And telehealth. And telehealth. (laughs) Telehealth. Telehealth. I love it. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on and thanks for everything that you're doing uh, for Femtech Startup. It's amazing. Thank you for listening to my interview with Dr. Kelly Teagle, founder of Wealthem. Kelly really got me thinking about women's healthcare in rural areas or the healthcare of Native people. What are other populations of women that likely are not getting the full spectrum of healthcare? Do we have any listeners like you that are working with Native American populations or Native communities of other countries? This is super important and absolutely needs attention and innovation. We want to hear from you. 
Now, don't forget about the big news, y'all. Femtech Focus, in collaboration with the Guild Academy, apply to be part of our first virtual Femtech Accelerator by September 18th. Go to letsguildacademy.com backslash femtech. Some other quick plugs uh, before we get out of here. A few events coming up. Tomorrow, Thursday, uh, I am actually speaking at Untitled Kingdom on the state of Femtech. The title of the talk is Femtech Profitable. Cliff Notes version? Yes, it is. <laughs> if you want the full version, come tomorrow, 12 to 1 p.m. Central Time, Untitled Kingdom. It's going to be awesome. Also, Femtech Focus is hosting a webinar next week, August 27th, on the Femtech landscape. Once, what is being worked on and what still needs innovating, you can register for that free event at our website, femtechfocus.org. Now, Please support the podcast, y'all. You've been so great. We have thousands of subscribers, and that just tickles me, y'all. I cannot believe how awesome you guys are. So please rate us, review us, share us with a friend, follow us on social. We have some really, really cool videos and graphics and all the applications, all these events. You, you don't have to write this down. Just follow us on social at Femtech Focus, and you'll get it all there. Until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.